ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to these go to 11. Once again, Greg Dutcher. Greg, say hello. Hello. And Dave Shive again, joining us for part two. Dave, say hello. Hello, everyone. And remember, we are in our hot topic month in June. Um, we are talking about uh, reformed, non-reformed theology, uh, particularly as it pertains to predestination in our first part. Uh, Greg and Dave uh, spoke a lot about um, the nature of God. Um, there, there are different views on that, the sovereignty of God, where they stand on that. Um, and we ended with them talking about uh, verses that they see uh, in coordination with the entire scope of Scripture and how they pertain to their view in the Reformed or non-Reformed view of predestination. So today we're going to come back and just start right off. Um, Dave, you started speaking a little bit about um, how you disagree with Greg's interpretation of the verses that he read in Deuteronomy, in Matthew, and then in Acts. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give you an opportunity to go ahead and elaborate that on a little little bit more before we turn it over to Greg um, to, to explain, Greg, why you disagree with, with Dave on his interpretation. So, Dave, go ahead. Well, uh, Deuteronomy is an extended sermon by Moses as Israel's preparing to cross uh, the Jordan into the land of Canaan. And uh, most of it is set up as a covenant document, which means an agreement. God is making an agreement with Israel. And it's an extension of an earlier covenant, which was generated in Genesis chapter 12 between God and Abraham, reaffirmed throughout Genesis, uh, which was that Israel would be God's agents to carry out his mission to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. In uh, Exodus, after the, uh, at the call of Moses, God calls Moses on the basis of the fact that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and uh, that he has remembered that covenant that he made with the patriarchs, with Moses' forefathers. And uh, after they get out of Egypt, they arrive at um, Mount Sinai, and God renews that covenant in Exodus chapter 19, uh, telling Israel that they are a special possession to him, that they're a kingdom of priests, that they are a holy nation. And all of this speaks of God's uh, passion for his people, that they would be effective in carrying out this mission of showing his glory before the nations so that the nations can be blessed and come to the knowledge of the Lord. The goal of the covenant is that everyone would know who Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is. So in Deuteronomy, when we read of, of um, God's election or choosing of Israel, it's in that context. Uh, and and, uh, and and the terms that surround that are words like loving and hating, which are very difficult for us, but these are languages that show up throughout the Bible. Jesus speaks of those who uh, hate their father and mother or love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. All of this comes out of a Deuteronomy mindset. It's the vocabulary of Deuteronomy. It's covenant language which says, uh, if God hates you, then that means he ha that you are not a part of this covenant uh, relationship that Israel has with him. And so Israel, could uh, Israel or their enemies could conclude that God hates them uh, because he's not treating them like covenant people. It doesn't mean God emotionally can't stand Israel, 
but it means that in the language of love-hate, the the king who makes the covenant loves those that he brings into his covenant. That's the act of love, is the actual inviting participation in a covenant relationship with the sovereign. So that's the tone of Deuteronomy. And uh, and as I said uh, in the first part of this podcast, that uh, this is not a question of who gets saved or who doesn't. This is not Israel being elected to salvation. So it doesn't, in my opinion, have any bearing on the on the issues that we might talk about in terms of election to salvation. Uh, and I made the point then that the there is no election to salvation anywhere in the Old Testament but that all election is either to the nation of Israel for specific ministry uh, to bring blessing to all the families of the earth or electing individuals for the task of doing a certain job for the Lord. So in Exodus 4 and verse uh, 37, we read about uh, uh, God loving Israel and therefore choosing or electing them. And his love is seen in his election and that means that they have been uh, called into a covenant relationship with him. And the covenant is for the purposes of them being his mission agents in bringing blessing to all the seconds. families of the earth. And uh, so that's the tone of the Old Testament. And much of the uh, love-hate language that we see in John, in particular, First and Second John, uh, comes out of that uh, covenant language of Deuteronomy. Uh, so that in Deuteronomy, those who love God uh, will keep his covenant and the commandments that are found in the covenant. And Jesus will say the same thing in John chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. The love there implies that the disciple who loves him and keeps his commandments has agreed to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus. So uh, that would be how I would see Deuteronomy. Greg? Yeah, uh... I think, Dave, I have essential agreement with you, and to be as clear as possible to the listeners, I uh, I probably didn't make it clear last podcast, a.k.a. 20 minutes ago, <laughs> uh, and that was the uh, notion. I, I, I think I agree, Dave. I think I'd be hard-pressed to prove individual, I think to use your term, if this is fair, individual deterministic election uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, I would be more um, inclined to say that Deuteronomy 7 lays down a principle that I think holds true for the election of individuals, even within the nation of Israel. My point there is that God reveals himself as an electing God, that what makes them a people uh, is not uh, their worthiness, is not their own choice. Hey, we'd like to have Yahweh as our God. We'll let the other nations have uh, Baal and you know uh, all these other gods, Ra of the sun and Egypt and and all the uh, gods and goddesses that were available to them, that what makes them God's people, uh, which I do think is a different question in the Old Testament than we're talking about uh, today if, uh, from the standpoint of individual uh, and individual salvation. But what makes them God's people is God's sovereign choice. And I think he wanted them to know that early on so that, again, he's establishing that he has the right to exercise his authority in whatever way he chooses that their formation was entirely up to him as a people. Now, when I take that principle into the New Testament, I actually read the Old Testament in light of the New, uh, which is, I think, what Paul is doing 
in Romans chapter 9. Now, that'll be interesting, Dave, because I know you said you could make your case in Romans 9, and I love that about uh, these kinds of debates and conversations. We're looking at the same text, and for our listeners, what, our main goal here is that we would all be Bereans. We've said that many mm-hmm. times, that we would be those who search the Scriptures diligently, uh, and if this uh, debate discussion helps people do that, then we're very happy. Uh, in Romans 9, Paul has a problem, and the problem, uh, as I see it, is that, wait a minute, wait a minute, how do we know God is indeed a promise-keeping God? It's obvious that there are are a vast number of ethnic Jews, Israelites, that have not embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Does that mean God has failed in some way to bring his promises to full fruition when the majority of his people are uh, not believing in Christ as Savior? And you see why that would be such a legitimate issue for Paul to tackle. So in verse 6, He argues that it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then this, to me, bomb of a statement, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, that he seems to say that there is in, for lack of a better term, an Israel within Israel. There's a true Israel within what we would call geopolitical, national, ethnic Israel. Um, So I think what Paul is aiming to do in Romans 9 is show that God's promise in the Old Testament, was never that every individual Israelite would be saved. So the question is, how does that work out? Um, And I think that's what he's going to track through this entire letter. It's hard not to go through each and every verse. But you'll notice what he does is he appeals to the same principle in Deuteronomy 7, but this time in regard to an individual Israelite's standing before God's salvation. So I find it interesting here that he uses individuals to illustrate it, whether that be Isaac, whether it be Jacob, Esau, in verse uh, 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. Here's where it gets tricky for me, Dave. Verse 14. Um, Paul seems to anticipate the fairness objection that you, I think, uh, rightly mentioned in the last podcast. This doesn't seem fair. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I don't understand the objection that Paul is anticipating and answering if he's merely describing uh, something corporate or national. It, it, it's hard for me to understand why he didn't simply remove the issue by saying, hey, now remember, I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about Israel. When his whole point is to establish that not everyone within national, corporate, ethnic Israel is actually saved. And I think what he does is he appeals to the principle of election that within that national Israel, certain individuals are truly redeemed and certain ones are not. Therefore, he says, it depends not on human will or man's effort, but on God who has mercy. I think he's making the case that the reason there is a true Israel within larger Israel is because of God's sovereign choice. Dave? And uh, uh, in general, I think that we would be in agreement. I think that the concern here is whether... Uh, the children who are the true descendants, is this talking about Israelites who are truly saved 
and will spend eternity with God as opposed to other Jews who wouldn't. And I think in this context, as in the Old Testament, the point is not who gets saved, uh, but through whom does the promise come that is going to result in blessing to all the families of the earth. And the that is the overall intent uh, of God, is to establish a line of blessing so that when he says in uh, verse 6, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are, they, they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. He's not speaking simply of those who will be saved, but who will be the descendants who will usher in the Messiah, uh, what line will he come from, and how will the blessing that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12 end up blessing all the families of the earth? And that it's the line that will produce the Messiah that is the concern here. And those outside of that line are not necessarily unsaved. They're simply not the agents by which God is going to bless. And furthermore, there will be some outside of that line, who are not even spiritual Israel, in the sense that Paul's now talking about, but they would be uh, outside of the of the seed of Israel that is spiritual. So, um, uh, verse 8, that is, not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. To be children of God and to be regarded as descendants and children of the promise uh, simply means God made decisions as to how the line of blessing would go, and the line was not going to go through Ishmael and Esau. It was going to go through Isaac and Jacob. Greg? Yeah, I would say, Dave, the reason it's <clears throat> difficult, I, I do see what you're saying there. And again, I, what makes this debate so hard <clears throat> is it's not an either-or. It, it's a both-and. I believe that some kind of corporate uh, distinction and individual uh, election are intertwined here in this passage. Verse 19, sorry, i got to clear my throat. Sure. The joy of real podcasting. Verse 19 uh, is a strong objection, and and I would ask you, Dave, does this not sound to you like what many would say about, I'll just say, the Calvinistic understanding of Reformed theology? You will say to me then, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? He's not merely talking at this point about God's choice of one nation over another to carry forth, or even corporate entity, his blessing to the world. He's talking about those that resist his will, which I think is interesting because he, his answer is, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I don't know that this would be the objection if the reader is tracking or the anticipated objector that Paul portrays here is tracking with Paul's argument. I mean, in a sense, oh, okay, yeah, we we understand this. He's choosing one group over another to carry forth his blessings into the world. The objection sounds like it's understood individually. Uh, In other words, when he says, who can resist his will, uh, he seems to be getting, I think, Paul's point that he makes in verse 18. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Then the person says, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can God find fault with me if I'm hardened? 
D- does that? Sure. I mean, yeah. just talk about that. Yeah. Dave. Well, I think that uh, we have to understand this in the Jew-Gentile context, and that by Romans 9 through 11, he has uh, moved from uh, those who are called and all that at the end of Romans 8 that we're familiar with into specific uh, concerns that the Jewish community would have. Uh, what's going on with us? Why is there this other group uh, that uh, uh, are Gentiles? How do they get into the, into the picture here? How do they become a viable central part of what God is doing? And over Romans 9 to 11, he's going to answer that and answer their concerns, speaking of grafting in and cutting off and and that the Jews would ultimately hopefully become jealous of the position that's given to the Gentiles. And so his rationale for how that happens comes in the early part of Romans 9 that uh, hardness has happened to Israel so when, and blindness. So in verse 18, he has mercy on whom he desires, he hardens whom he desires. There is a hardness and a blindness that has descended upon the nation of Israel that may be perplexing to the average Jew. They don't get it. And so here is how that happened, that God made a decision that he would ultimately send the line of blessing through this person, not that person. And ultimately, it would make its way to Christ so that now there is this new thing, which is Christ and all who are in him. And that's where the line of blessing now is. So I would see it more in ethnic uh, terms than uh, individual salvation terms. Then I'm just looking at the text, Dave, in verse 22, uh, how would you understand the term um, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, that very well could be Gentiles. You know, that uh, the Jews were the ones uh, that he catalogs in the first uh, four or five verses of this chapter and talks about all the resources that were given to them, the extreme blessings that were um, uh, lavished upon them, eight things that God did. He made covenants with them, and he gave them the temple service, and his glory resided among them. He gave them the law. All of these things were done for them. Well, what was given to the Gentiles? Nothing. Uh, but the Jews were given the mandate that all of those blessings would somehow make their way into the Gentile world, who were, because they were not uh, children of the blessing at that point, they were vessels who were destined for destruction because they didn't have those things. And so I would see that as uh, also an ethnic kind of issue. Yeah, I'm looking, Dave, at that phrase again, and I uh, just to, to tell you, and then I'll try to build the argument, I understand uh, the idea of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction as ultimate final judgment. Uh, I understand this as a reference to what we would call hell, uh, sort of, uh, to use fancy term, uh, eschatological judgment, I think would be the, the term, sort of the last things. And I see in here something that's twofold. I see what you're saying about Israel's mission, but I think Paul is just as, if not more, focused on Israel's unbelief and focusing on the sovereignty of God, why some believe and some don't, not why one group has been chosen or another. I mean, verse 30 of chapter 9, what shall we say then? that the Gentiles who did not pursue it, uh, pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as is written. And, uh, of course, we have the reference there to the stone laid in Zion. Uh, you see again in chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God... 
for them is that they may be saved. So keep in mind, he's just been talking about they've been pursuing it by works, not by faith. Uh, and then verse 2, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice how many times faith, belief keeps coming up there. So I, I believe that what is uh, fueling Paul is the question, why do so many, and I'll say it, individual Israelites not believe? And that's what he's dealing with. Wouldn't the promise of God to national ethnic Israel ensure their, I think, salvific belief mm -hmm. that they would believe Jesus is the uh, true Messiah and would escape final eschatological judgment? That's what I see going on in Romans. So that to go back to all those references, it is because some, not all, but a remnant within uh, Israel were the recipients of sovereign mercy. Again, verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. It depends then, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So I don't see here primarily, I guess I'll adjust my statement, the mission of Israel or the mission of the church or the Gentiles. I see the salvation of individual lost Israelites. How is Paul going to explain that, that PR problem, really? I see it as a PR problem. Mm -hmm. You know, this doesn't make sense. We've got so many Jews that don't believe Christ is the Messiah and a small remnant like Paul that does, and he attributes the reason that he believes and a few Jews believe to God's sovereign choice. Where am I missing it? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I don't know if you're thinking, where aren't you missing it, right? Uh, no, no. I mean, I, I think that the fact that we're having this conversation means that there are difficult issues here mm -hmm. in, in this passage. I would uh, back up for a second and go back into the Gospels, and I'm thinking of um, Matthew uh, chapter 21, where, where there are two parables. The first one is of the two sons. Remember, there was a son who said, yeah, Dad, I'll go to work, but he wouldn't. And the mm -hmm. other, no, I'm not going to work, but then he changed his mind, and he did. Mm -hmm. Jesus makes it clear there that he's talking, uh, this is a parable that represents the Jews and the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. That is, the Jews who said, sure, you know, we, God's blessed us, we'll go ahead and do this mission, but then they didn't do it. And the Gentiles, who were not initially a central part of that, they were ob objects of the mission, and they were not working but then they change their mind, and Jesus says to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Mm -hmm. So he's making it clear there that, that something is brewing of a transition from the hegemony which the nation of Israel maintained over God's program in the world to a Gentile uh, um, management of his kingdom vineyard. The next parable is of the vineyard itself. They're both vineyard parables, but the next one in Matthew 21, around verse 33, speaks of the man who planted the vineyard and who um, went away. He left it in the management of his servants. Mm -hmm. While he's gone, he occasionally will send uh, his servants back to check things out. And these guys get beat up. They get killed. He does it twice. So finally he says, I'll send my son. And surely they'll respect him. And But when he comes, they uh, say, oh, the son of the vineyard owner, if we kill him, we can own the vineyard ourselves. 
Now keep in mind that uh, in this whole section, he's speaking specifically to the religious leaders of the Jewish community. And so uh, he says, now what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do about this problem? Mm -hmm. And one version, and they say, oh, my word, that's terrible. He ought to really punish them. In another version, I think in Luke, he says, uh, he just says it for himself. He says, these guys will really get punished badly, to which the Jewish leaders say, no, no, that's just really terrible. And so they don't get that Jesus is actually talking about them. But then by verse 43, it becomes apparent when he says, and this is the key verse, Therefore I say to you, Jewish leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another nation. The word nation there is ethne, which means an ethnic group, not a geopolitical unit. And so God says, the management of my vineyard, which is an Old Testament metaphor of God's work in the world. How is God working? Well, take the picture of a vineyard. God has planted a vineyard, and he's lavished uh, all kinds of uh, great things upon it, uh, and it's a wonderful vineyard. Uh, But the vineyard does not produce good grapes. It produces bad grapes. And so uh, he's very disappointed with this vineyard. And, well, clearly, multiple passages in the Old Testament, the vineyard is Israel. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is now saying in Matthew 21, verse 43, to the Jewish leaders, this thing that was given to you by which you were going to bless all the families of the earth, this vineyard program of mine in the world is going to be wrenched out of your hands, and I'm going to give it to another ethne. Uh, And so we see that unfolding at the end of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. The apostles pick up on it. Paul, in his first missionary journey, says, you know, I'm just going to turn away from you Jews, and I'm just going to start focusing my efforts on Gentiles now. Now you come to Romans, and it's that same motif that is hovering over the whole discussion in Romans 9 to 11 about what God is doing in the world and what in the world happened to the Jews. And why are they in unbelief? And it, it can be traced back to Matthew 21, 43, and that a, 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 a transition was set in motion by Jesus that is brought to complete completion in the book of Acts, And now Paul is talking about it in Romans 9 and trying to help Jews understand uh, that God has um, uh, made a complete uh, turnabout in how he's running his business in the world. And uh, verse 30 then of Romans 9, uh, you just read, uh, I think, 30 to 32 or something like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, But he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, these are the guys that were destined for destruction. They did not pursue righteousness. They have attained righteousness. Kingdom of God's taken is going to be given to tax collectors and prostitutes. Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? They didn't pursue it by faith, but they stumbled over the stumbling stone, Matthew twenty-one forty-three. So I think that uh, I would say that that uh, the issue of faith and unbelief in this section is an ethnic issue, and it's, and it's a carryover from the parable in Matthew twenty-one forty-three about the uh, decision that God has made to transition his kingdom management and his kingdom program in this world from Jews to Gentiles. Yeah, and I would say, Dave, I, I mean, everything you say, I would agree if we were in a 
in a different discussion. This, this would be an interesting discussion, a discussion on dispensationalism, covenant theology, mm-hmm. the, the continuity between Old Testament, New Testament regarding Israel, etc. So really, I agree, Dave. I've always found a, a, a great resonance with you on that. I just think Paul is, is saying more than that. And I would say if you look at chapter 11, uh, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And notice what I think Paul appeals to is his own individual status. For I myself am an Israelite, you know, singular, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, you want evidence that God hasn't rejected Jews. It, I'm, I, I am right here, one of them. Now, granted, I'm part of a remnant. He goes on to make that case um, using the example of Elijah in the Old Testament. Do you not know uh, what it says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, that might be a place where where I would argue with you on Old Testament election, but we could save that. What does it mean that he kept 7,000 men I take that who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who are not worshipers of a false god, but worshipers of a true god, that God secured their worship of him, which I think is sovereign electing language, um, as I see it. Uh, so too at the present time, there is a remnant. And here it is, David, so I see it to me so clear. Chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Other, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? And here it is. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, I think what they're seeking is not uh, anything other but the, the righteousness they need to stand before God. I, I don't think they're seeking here their mission. I don't think they're seeking their task in the world. I think they are seeking what Paul describes back in chapter 9 that you read. They are seeking a righteousness that they need to stand before God. They think they can get it through meticulous law-keeping. Uh, and whether you get into the, the new perspective on Paul and covenant gnomism, whatever it is, their standing before God, they think, is going to be uh, obtained through their own efforts, religious ceremonies or otherwise. So in verse 7, what then? Uh, back in chapter 10, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And then here it is, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So I would say, Dave, there seems to be a distinction. Who in that verse is the elect distinguished from the other Mm -hmm. group to you? Okay. And I think now we're into the issue of election very clearly. Uh You know, and and my perspective on that is very different than yours. And so you're reading this through the lens of one who believes in the reform doctrine of election. I read it as one who's not. And so the elect then would be very different to me than to you. And uh, and uh, to me, the issue of election uh, has to do with Christ being the elect one. Uh, Isaiah 42, one, my chosen, my elected servant. I have elected one. Luke 9 quotes that and says that Jesus is the elect of God. And so uh, God has chosen his son. He's delighted in his son. And he's chosen that everything he's now going to do, he's going to do directly through those who are connected uh, with his son in an election relationship. They have been placed into his body. And so uh, election then in this sense is not 
saying that God chose them to be in that position, but he chose his son, and everyone who is in Christ is therefore elect. All right, Dave, and I would say, <laughs> I think you're reading into the text what isn't there. Yeah. I know those are serious fighting words, yeah. but, and I know you'd say the same about me, and I think we can, uh, our friendship yeah. can survive that. <laughs> Verse, let, me, let me just say, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not arguing for the corporate election primarily in Romans 9 to 11. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue from other passages, but I think Romans 9 to 11 is consistent with that okay, sure. position. Sure. Can, can I just interject for a second? Please. Um, because we've been talking um, in, in going back and forth between corporate election and individual mm-hmm. election. Um, can uh, we just take a few minutes here and just talk about your positions on corporate election, individual election, um, and why you believe there, there's a difference there or how they connect, um, whatever. And I'll um, Dave, I don't know if you want to go first on this one. And um, again, just explain to us, you know, uh, wh- why there's a distinction that needs to be made here between corporate and individual, what that is, you know, why are we getting hung up on this aspect? Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to go first. Um, uh, election, in, in, and I go back to Deuteronomy as a starting point and through the Old Testament, is a decision that God makes to choose a an ethnic group, a family through which he is going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. He did that with Abraham in Genesis 12. Everything throughout the Old Testament is predicated upon that decision, election in Deuteronomy or wherever you want to find it. And so, and I think that that is the model of election that pervades Scripture. Uh, it seems odd that Jesus and the apostles might want to have an entirely different perspective on election than what uh, the Old Testament taught about how God chose uh, his people not to be saved but to be vehicles of his blessing to all the other families of the earth. So when the transition was made in Matthew twenty-one forty-three that there would be another body, what would that body be? It would be the body of Christ. Uh, all those who were elected in the Old Testament were descendants of Abraham, and therefore they were part of that elect community of believers. True, not all believed, but all were a part of that general body that God was going to use to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. When he said to Israel, I'm taking your mandate away from you, Matthew 21:43, and giving it to another ethnic group, he's speaking of his decision that they no longer will maintain the uh, the management role of what God is doing in the world. He's going to give it to another group, which is the church. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the elect one. And so everyone who finds themselves in Christ is part of the elect community. In that sense, uh, what I hold to has often been called corporate election, which means election into a body, into a family, and not specifically individually choosing some people to be saved and others not to be saved. Greg? Uh, Good summary, Dave. I I think, again, everything Dave said, except the last part about individuals, (laughs) everything he said, I would agree with. I think Israel, I think God did elect Israel, uh, national ethnic Israel, to be the vehicle of blessing for the world. No doubt about it. Have you ever heard Dave teach? Uh, in the perspectives classes, it's just worth its weight in gold. It's so good. And Dave's opened my eyes to many of those new, those Old Testament promises, the way God works in the world. Uh, yes, he does that. Christ is called his chosen one. 
the church is elect in that sense. Where we really differ is I'm asking the question, I think we're all asking the question, how do individual sinners get in on that elect group? Mm-hmm. So I would say, Dave may think this is unfair, but I'll give it a shot anyway, that uh, Dave's position, as I hear it, sounds more like corporate intention. The election is an election uh, to a purpose. So in other words, God intends that the church be his vehicle of blessing. You could say God chooses that his church be the, the vehicle of blessing for the world. I believe that the Bible says that, and it also says that God chooses the individuals who will comprise the church. So it's, I don't know if they need to be pitted against each other. Uh, they do in the sense that normally people that would argue Dave's position will say something like all of the passages on election in the New Testament, or predominantly, uh, however they would phrase that, are corporate, uh, meaning they're about large groups, not individual groups. Sometimes people adopt that. See, I don't really even adopt that. But I remember you did a debate with a guy, Dave, years ago who kept using analogies. If there's a chosen group of cows, then all the individual cows in that group must also be chosen. And I would say, no, that's not what Dave believes. Dave believes that the church is God's chosen vehicle to work through the world. And I believe that too. Our debate, I think, comes down to how does an individual sinner get in on that elect group? I think election continues to the to the. It trickles down to the individuals who comprise that group. Dave would say no, and if I think, Dave, I'm hearing you, if I said, but how do they get in there, you would put that more in a mystery category, Mm -hmm. that the Bible is less clear on that. Right, but I would also say, and I think uh, this can be defined a couple different ways, my uh, general thesis is that love must be freely chosen so that those who love God cannot be said to love God uh, if they had no other choice, if they had to love him. And and so uh, when you come to the doctrine of election, we're saying basically God said, hey, you know, you're going to be mine and you're going to love me, and that's the way it is. And those people over there, they can't love me and they're not going to be mine. And to me, that's inconsistent with the nature of love, which cannot be mandated it can, and it can't be forced. And it must be freely chosen. So when we come to the doctrine of election to assume that people can be, uh, by the, if we want to call it the gracious divine will, be coerced into responding to him and loving him and responding to him, I'd say that's inconsistent with what we understand love to be. Can I um, just uh, see if um, both of you can walk me through what you view is going on behind the scenes when you're witnessing to a person and they come to salvation because dave i have a suspicion that you would in no way argue that the holy spirit is working on someone uh to receive salvation correct you're saying i would not you you wouldn't disagree with that you would agree that the holy spirit has to work um in in someone's Uh life Mm -hmm. to receive salvation um so so uh greg we'll start with you this time go ahead and just uh, from your theological perspective, mm-hmm. somebody has come to Christ, you, you've been able to miraculously lead them to Christ. In your mind, theologically, how did that happen? How did that work? I would say, Nathan, through my own eloquence and superior wisdom, <laughs> I've conquered the forces of darkness arrayed against them. No, I'm kidding for anybody still listening to this intense discussion, and I love it, by the way, Dave. I'm, 
enjoying this a great deal, thinking about these things freshly. I keep feeling like we need to tell some jokes or something to, <laughs> to, to lighten this. <laughs> to draw mood. people back in again yeah. and doze it off. <laughs> we got to go with the priest and the rabbi. Yeah, yeah. A Calvinist and an Arminian walk into a bar. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I would say, Nathan, yeah, uh, I think of uh, Paul says uh, that um, no man can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you take a passage like that and, and you say, okay, if I handed an unsaved, unregenerate Hollywood actor, do you think there's any of those? If I handed one of those dudes a script and the line said Jesus is Lord, could he say it? Oh, of course. That's not what Paul is saying. He's obviously not saying a a person cannot repeat those words. Uh, He is saying that a person cannot say those words uh, from the heart in a saving way, a cry of desperation for salvation, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm I'm quite sure Dave's going to say he agrees with that, and I I know that he does. Um, Again, the question is to what extent Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit works. I think what's happening is the gospel is being proclaimed. I think it should be uh, proclaimed passionately, fervently. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say I'm begging, or as Paul says, we implore you, be reconciled to God. It is the language of persuasion, of virtual begging, of appealing. I love Spurgeon's uh, graphic analogy that we should be wrapping our arms around their knees while they're trying to jump into hell behind us, uh, begging them not to. So I think externally, that's the external call of the gospel, the proclamation of the truth. What the Holy Spirit does in the case of a true convert is he takes that word. uh, First Peter tells us we're born again through the word of God. He takes that word, implants it into the heart. I don't know the order that you get into the, uh, you know, there's all sorts of technical lingo here that people debate Uh, on the order of salvation uh, that I won't seek to do. I'll simply say that the Holy Spirit regenerates that sinner, that the only reason that a sinner would embrace the gospel is because their nature has changed. And since we cannot change our nature, since we have no ability in ourselves to, to reshape our nature, it is the Holy Spirit that does it. So then, and this is where I would say to Dave, the one thing, I don't like the word coerce, understand why he's using it, because our nature changing is not about coercion. I believe that I freely chose Christ after I was regenerated, that then I see him as beautiful. Because in a sense, who wouldn't choose him, Mm -hmm. the glorious, magnificent Savior, when you understand him as he truly is? Who wouldn't choose him? Well, the person who is bound by his own sinful nature who loves darkness, who cannot see the light of the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit invades the human heart, uh, changes our nature, we see him and we embrace him freely. So, quick summary. The, the reason why a person, um, in your opinion, in your view, um, is able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved is because the Holy Spirit has done a work in them, has, has already brought them from death to life. Yes. Okay. Dave? Uh, quick question. Could you have refused that? No. See, there, there's the huge problem. <laughs> That's the big elephant in the room. Yeah. So, so Dave, let's start um, with, the, with your understanding of what's going on behind the scene um, of, uh, of a person being saved. Um, because we can see the outward expression, but theologically uh-huh. we have a behind-the-curtain sort of view on right. what's going on. So yeah. what is your behind-the-view 
of what's going on in salvation? Well, I think that it starts with the nature of people uh, created in God's image, dead in sin, but nevertheless groping, searching, looking, wanting something, knowing something bigger is out there, and that God, uh, uh, in his grace, sheds his light on people, and uh, that he doesn't do that uh, discriminately. And so um, he, he puts himself on display in various ways, and uh, this is the mystery part that I said before that uh, I don't think Scripture explains, and therefore I'm not going to try to explain it, uh, but that there, at some point there is a light that dawns and a person chooses to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Why some do and some don't, I don't know. But the reality is that it's my conviction that if I cannot refuse that, or if I can't, on the other hand, say I want that, which I think is what Greg is saying, the the person who's lost cannot say I want it. The person who is become saved cannot say eh, I don't think so. Then that raises uh, enormous questions about uh, the nature of love, the nature of responding to God. So again, just um, quick summary: you would view it as this person is um, is seeing God in the universe, mm-hmm. um, and and they they decide that this is something they want, and so they uh, again believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. They are saved, mm-hmm. um, and that's when um, that's when they are converted, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, right. Um, so the difference would be the conversion before that act of I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and I am saved, or the conversion is after I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like those words come out. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Sure. Is that is that a fair assessment of both positions? Yeah. 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 And I think again, it's to me, it's conceptual. I think we get mm-hmm. uh, wrapped around the axle when it we try to make it temporal. That's why sure. the, the, the language is so tricky. I always try to say it's a conceptual idea regeneration and repentance. I I would say conceptually regeneration precedes repentance Mm -hmm. because otherwise I don't know how to explain a man who loves darkness and hates light choosing Christ Mm -hmm. when he's in darkness. So I think that darkness must, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. become light. I think that's what, see, that's where I would disagree with Dave. I think those things are actually clearly described. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're clearly described, not necessarily clearly understood, uh, which is an important distinction, and maybe that's where some of our, our issues come in. To me, John 3, the new birth, um, I would say 2 Corinthians 4 uh, is, is a very instructive passage because you have sinners described outside of Christ, blinded in their unbelief by the God of this age, small g, mm-hmm. Satan himself. And the question is, how do people in the grip of this enemy come to know him? Uh, a passage I was going to do in the first podcast that I'll mention now um, is one of my favorites. It's in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, where it says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, that's all our work. You know, the Lord's servant, sharing the gospel, preaching, instructing the church, comes across someone who is rejecting these truths. And notice what... Uh, Uh, He does in verse 25, he shifts uh, to God's work. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, which I take that to mean the man can't repent. I do not believe a man in spiritual darkness can repent. 
because uh, repentance is turning. It's doing the 180. I used to say 360 until Lisa <laughs> said, yeah, that would be a problem. You're right back where you started. The man does a 180. Not so good at math. <laughs> um, turns to God. Why? Because God in his kindness, in gentle kindness, has granted repentance. And then verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So again, same picture. Man is held hostage uh, through sin, through Satan. He is unable to repent. So what has to happen in this passage? God has to grant the repentance. So I would say, Dave, I don't believe just the faith is given by God. I think the repentance is given by God. And I don't go to Ephesians 2.8. Because, Dave, uh, another helpful point. I mean it. Dave has really helped me think through these things and not just kind of have you know, canned responses. Mm-hmm. Help me with this, Dave, in the grammar. Am I right? Pistis, which is the word for faith, belief, in mm-hmm. Ephesians 2, if I remember right, is feminine. And the question is, what is the antecedent? You know, that or this is the gift of mm-hmm. God is neuter. It's something like right. that. They don't line up. So mm-hmm. many people will look at Ephesians 2, 8 and say, it proves faith is a gift of God. <laughs> I think it is, but Dave has helped me with that. I can't really go to that passage as a proof text. To prove it. Because... I think the antecedent is unclear. Yeah. Am I getting that right, Dave, grammatically? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dave, your response? Whew. Well, um, and yet I think you would say Philippians one twenty nine, faith is a gift. I would. Yeah. Yeah. So you would still argue that point. Oh, I, would, I do think faith is a gift. Yeah. I'm just saying that text I don't think is your slam dunk that a lot of Reformed people do. Yeah. You know, a lot of Reformed people go to uh, Ephesians 2. I actually think it's stronger in Philippians. If I heard you rightly, Dave, in the last last podcast, you would say Philippians one one twenty nine could be understood. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. I, I feel like I heard it as God gives the, the, the context through the preaching of the gospel, the opportunity to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not trying to no. say that negatively. No. I, I think that's what I heard right. you say. I think he's saying, no, he's, he's, he's given you mm-hmm. belief. As he's given you yeah. suffering, they they both go together. Yeah. And I I understand why you say those things. I think, and I don't want to be unfair, and I'm not being pejorative in saying that I think the reformed presuppositions about election drive one to try to uh, make a. I don't mean this in a negative way. That's but right. to, to create a formula by which to explain how all this happens, mm-hmm. and I don't think. That Philippians one twenty nine does that, and I don't think in Second Timothy two does that either. In saying God may grant them repentance, well, those that's a pretty nebulous phrase that we might want to make more specific and say this person can't repent. Well, I don't know that it's saying that. That may be true. God's going to give them something. He's going to give them in some way. Uh, the ability to come to the truth, and I agree with that. I think that God, uh, that no one can be saved if God is not involved in some way, but to say that it's required that this person absolutely cannot repent and God has to give them specifically repentance, he has to give them specifically faith, or they can never be saved, I think that's going beyond the language of Philippians one twenty nine or Second Timothy 2 and verse 25. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, and I... I get that. I, uh, what's my sophisticated response? I, 
I think I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of something that sounds really, really scholarly. Uh, you're well, wrong, the, I'm right. Nanny, nanny, yeah. nanny. <laughs> the Puau participle, wait, that's Hebrew, and I don't know what Puau means. Uh, it's where I wanted to go yesterday, to the Puau. Um, yeah, Dave, I, I, I see that. I mean, I, I, again, okay, I'll go back to the experience argument, which is the weakest one. For me, these are the verses that I resisted. I remember reading verses like that thinking, well, wait a minute. I believed I chose to believe, you know, and, and I wouldn't have said it quite this crassly, but I think somewhere in my mind, it was sort of the meet me halfway principle. Jesus does his part. I do my part. And those verses always, uh, rub me strangely. So I, I would say in my mind, there wasn't a preconceived doctrine of Calvinistic election that I needed to find. It was the verses specifically that, challenge my thinking on some things and then when i look back and i remember thinking okay what and i remember asking matt smith this when when i had my conversion uh experience which was pretty dramatic you know i uh, i'll get into that maybe some other time i called him on the phone i now look back and think that i actually was saved before i even called um that because my nature had changed i was confused i needed discipleship i needed guidance to clearly articulate what my heart was crying out already that I wanted Christ, I, I needed him. And then I thought, well, when, when did that happen? Did I choose myself into that change? Did I, did, did I get reasoned? Into, no. And so I admitted, that's just an experience. I don't ever try to lead with that because I don't think it's very helpful. Because everybody, Lisa, my wife, has a very different uh, experience of her conversion, as she shared elsewhere. Um, but for me, it was those verses that God grants repentance God gives belief. That, that's how I was reading them, without a preconceit. Now, there might be some Reformed guys, I agree, that have this ahead of time, and they're looking to proof text. I mean, we all do that. I've done that, too. Oh, I've got a position. To, somebody quick, give me a verse. Uh, you know, if I can dare say, um, I think he's written some helpful things. He's an easy whipping boy for people. Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. My impression from Rick on those points he was making is, find the version of the Bible whether that's the message, Phillips, that says it the best way to make my point. We all do that. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's what I'm saying. In my case, it was these verses that seemed to, to I, I don't want to say suggest, say that even the subjective experience of salvation, the external events are obviously God's grace because we had nothing to do with them, the cross, the resurrection, uh, the atonement, all his work. But the subjective experience of being connected to those realities I started to see, well, even those God was responsible for, and he gets all the credit. Dave, I want to give you the last uh, word here. We have about four minutes um, to wrap up, so uh, go ahead. Well, I would say that it it just kind of throws you under the bus when you have to use Matt Smith as an example. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Uh, The man with the worst line imaginable to get a kiss the first kiss out of his future wife and you're using him as a model yeah yeah nathan take that out in the post yeah i I don't want that in there yeah dave has you've killed me right there the arguments dave i might bow down to you right now that's an ad hominem attack that i really like uh i've i've often said there are certain views that i do not hold that i wish i could hmm and I'm not going to name any of them right now, but there are views that are 
increasing in popularity in the church and almost seem like no-brainers, but to me they're problematic. Mm-hmm. I've said this before about Reformed theology. I wish I could be Reformed because it would provide me with a system uh, – and I'm not in any way saying this in a demeaning way, but it would provide me with a system of uh, theology that would enable me to plug all kinds of holes. That there is a presentation in Scripture of salvation that, to me, uh, does not answer the questions that Reformed theology wants to answer. And I wish I could answer those questions as definitively and as confidently as most Reformed scholars do, but the text of Scripture won't allow me to, and and I would be less than honest if I did. So uh, we're talking about uh, not just uh, two different um, bottom lines of where we end up, but to a degree a certain amount of methodology of how we approach the Scripture that uh, for me I have to be content to allow what the Scripture does not explain clearly clearly to remain unexplained. And for the Reformed uh, person, they are convinced that those same questions that I think are not answered, that there is a way to answer them from Scripture. And uh, I wish I could do that, but I can't do that. And I'm not sure Scripture will allow me to. So I think that that is uh, part of the tension that exists as we talk about these things is that there are two ways of drawing conclusions about these very important theological issues. One leaves a a good bit of gray area that we wish we could plug. The other uh, has a way of explaining those gray areas so that they make sense to the people who believe them. And there is where the gap exists between the two of us, I think. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but I no, no, I, I think that's a, a good summary. Dave. Mm-hmm. Before we end, I, I want to um, give you both an opportunity, um, and, and I'm not going to give you the easy out here. Uh-oh. You cannot say, uh, because this is what the Bible says, mm-hmm. or you cannot say, you know, well, I just go to the Bible for this. I want you to give me um, two uh, theologians who, who you guys look up to and respect who support your views and ideas on um, – uh, election or, or non-election um, that you go to um, that you can study and research. Mm-hmm. And this is for the audience so that they have two names that they can, you know, look up um, and go to to find out, wow, you know, these are other great men of the faith who, who are looking at these things from different perspectives. So this is why you cannot say the Bible because obviously you're approaching the Bible from different perspectives. Um, and so, uh, Greg, you go first and then uh, Dave. Yeah, it's a good question. I've got many, and I'm trying to think of what might be most helpful. Nobody's perfect, obviously. Uh, I think everybody will argue from a different standpoint. Um, I actually found uh, Sam Storms uh, wrote one called Chosen for Life. It's it's not among the popular ones. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of great ones that I found very helpful. I think he's a little more exegetical than Sproul. Um, and so what Dave has always challenged me to do is be scriptural. I think too many uh, Reformed um, advocates become dependent on theological phrasing uh, as opposed to really looking at the scriptures and letting the exegesis of the text drive their theology. I think uh, he does a very, very good job uh, with that. Um, that's Sam Storm's Chosen for Life. Uh, 
And to bring a little balance, on a popular level, mm-hmm. I think Sproul's chosen by God uh, is a little more of that theological reason. Sproul's more of a philosopher and a theologian, in my opinion, than an exegete. <laughs> I mean, he's probably a better exegete than I am, so who am I to say that, right? But I would say uh, Sproul deals with the issues of justice, mercy, grace, which we talked about more in the first podcast, about as well as anybody can. So I would say uh, those two guys, Sam Storm's chosen for life, R.C. Sproul, uh, chosen by God, and other writings too, mm-hmm. do, do a good job of representing that position. Dave, two guys that you would go to? Well, the first um, is, is Greg Boyd, who uh, in reform circles is... He's pers- not always a well-liked persona guy. Persona non grata. <laughs> Uh, but aside from uh, what people have heard about him, his book, Satan and the Problem of Evil, is without a doubt the most influential book in my life on this subject. And um, uh, he develops the, uh, the view extremely well. He's a Ph.D. In, in theology from Princeton. He is an evangelical uh, he affirms scripture. He's he's a great thinker, and I would. It's not a light book by any stretch of the imagination, but it certainly is readable, and um, I think very persuasive. Uh, after him, you know, there's options. <clears throat> there's a book on uh, corporate election by a guy. <clears throat> excuse me, by a guy named Klein K L E I N called uh, God's Chosen People. And he defends the corporate election view quite well. Gordon Olson has written a number of good things on uh, on uh, what he calls a middle ground between Arminianism and Calvinism. And one more would be a guy named Terence Fretheim, F-R-E-T-H-E-I-M, who wrote a book called The Suffering of God, which was probably the first thing that I read that really started to open up this area to me. So those are a few suggestions. All right. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Um, Greg, if it's not too presumptuous, um, we haven't done this in a while. So um, how about um, we'll do an iTunes review again? Sure. Um, it's been a while since we've had some iTunes reviews. Again, the purpose of iTunes reviews, it gets us higher on the uh, the search list. Absolutely. So that people um, can find us. Um, but if you go online, write us an iTunes review. We will send you out one of those books of your choice. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so we'll do the, uh, the, the first uh, two people to write an iTunes review. Uh, we will send you out one of those, uh, I guess there were five books mentioned total. One of those five books, you mentioned which one, email us. These go to 11, uh, yeah, 15 us, at gmail.com. Tell us that you wrote the review. Yes, tell us that you wrote the review. Um, you know, Tell us your, uh, your username. Um, these go to 11, the number 15, at gmail.com, uh, because we do need your uh, name and address uh, when we mail those to you. We are a little behind on the books, but uh, I've talked to those people. We will be getting them out, out to them this week, um, and uh, we'll, we will send you a copy of one of those five books that you choose. Don't forget to include your name, address, and which book you are looking to get. Um, so I think we're ready to go ahead and sign off now. We went a little longer with uh, these two total, but I think uh, – uh, I think this was a discussion worth uh, going long for. And so Loved it. Um, it was great. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, really great perspective. Um, and so has anyone uh, converted on their view yet? <laughs> well, I did want to ask Dave in closing, is it possible? I was wondering about this. Could somebody be predestined to be an Arminian and somebody else choose to be a Calvinist? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the real question. <laughs> 
Oh, my. All right. So we're going to go ahead and sign off now. And, uh, gentlemen, our closing line, we just rocked the Casbah. Rocked it. It was a privilege. These go to 11.